Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. My name is Dan Taylor. My name is John Micton. Join us twice a month at the International Schools Podcast as we have conversations with international school leaders, educators, and entrepreneurs working and engaging in the world of international schools and education. And finally, just to say a huge thank you to our sponsor, Asa for Education, for making this podcast happen. Now on to the episode. Hi, welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm here as always with, with John Micton. How, how are you doing, John? Great, Dan. It's really nice to have you back in Europe. And uh, we have kind of a, a busy schedule together uh, with guests and some, you know, specials that we're going to go be doing. So yeah, lovely to see you and lovely to be here today. Yeah, I'm back from Asia from three months in Asia back in Prague now. Um, so it's been great, you know, exhausting trip, but it was it was a good we're gonna record an episode about it, I believe next next weekend, don't we? Yes, absolutely. So today, you know, right now, it's uh, we're in the middle of December before the winter season holidays, and it's recruiting season. And of course, recruiting is such a big thing. And for people, it's very stressful. It's very exciting. For schools, it can be exciting, but it can be stressful. And there's so much tied to it. It's so complex, especially in the international school space. And we, Dan and I thought, wow, we should really spend some time. And really what we're going to be doing through the conversation is really hopefully giving some strategies, some ideas, giving some context uh, about recruiting. And this is really for people that are starting to think about recruiting for 2023. So maybe in the spring, they're thinking about it. Summer, they start putting their resume together. And then in August, they're starting to contact the different recruitment agencies. And I just really excited to have our guest, Pete Kennedy. Pete and I had the pleasure of working together in Japan. I'm not going to say how many decades ago, but, uh, and we've <laughs> kept in touch, uh, <laughs> kept in touch for a long time. And he has been ahead in many different uh, international schools and even done some startups. So Pete, welcome to the International School Podcast. And if you can just give us a quick little bio, 30 seconds, so then we can kick off. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, John. And Dan, uh, nice to meet you. John, it's great to connect again. Um, yeah, we, we go uh, back into the 90s, my friends. So I think that ages <laughs> us a bit, but we're still young at heart, right? Um, yes. Um, yeah, I, I, I've been uh, overseas. Uh, I've just returned to the States for, for a year working with CERT Associates. Um, but I was overseas 35 years. I've worked in nine different international schools, um, ranging from Japan, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Sudan, uh, Italy, um, Brazil, Vietnam, et cetera. Uh, probably missed one or two in there. Um, but I started out as a high school math teacher and uh, coached a lot of sports in the schools I was in. And then I moved into leadership and was a high school principal, middle school, high school principal at a few schools. And then finally I was a, superintendent of a network of schools in Vietnam. So I've done the teacher, the principal, the head of school roles, and now I've, I'm working, uh, consulting with search associates. And it's really quite fun to help schools and, uh, and candidates connect. And it's kind of keeping your finger in the international world, but it's almost like teaching again. We're teaching a lot of the candidates what to do, how to do it. And when they land a job, I'm as excited as they are. So I, I get all excited about this. So it is quite fun. It's, it's quite uh, stressful for the candidates and teachers at, at, uh, in, uh, in uh, school sometimes. But in the end, when it all works out, it, it's quite fun and it's quite enjoyable to do this. So happy to you know talk about any questions you guys might have or how we can give some tips to um, new teachers thinking about starting the international, uh, their international career. Um, I, like many, went overseas. I found out uh, about international school like serendipitously. I was doing a Fulbright scholarship in the Philippines and met some guys playing basketball on a Thursday night in the International School of Manila. And I just said, what's this about? And they told me about international schools. And I went overseas for two years um, at the American School in Japan. And then 35 years later, I'm back in the States. So I started out with a short-term plan and then it turned into a lifelong career, which I would never, ever um, trade and you meet great people like John along the way. So, Pete, where are you? Where are you based now? Where in the states are you now? I am. I am kind of trying to figure out where I'd like to live in the states. Uh, so okay. I'm in Savannah, Georgia. I'm in Savannah, Georgia, right now, a lovely yeah. southern town, antebellum town. And I'll be um, continuing my international um, gig, I guess. After the holidays, I'll be going to Australia for a few months, and then 
uh, maybe Japan for a quick pit stop. And I live on a sailboat in the summertime in Sag Harbor, New York. And then after that, I don't know what's going to happen, but I bring search along with me as we go. So your, your, your search is completely remote a company. As long as you can cover the time zones, you can live anywhere. Yeah. And I, like I was at the, um, the NIS people of color conference, uh, last week. So you, you recruit in, I work in the Southern regions in the United States. So I, my territories are Georgia, Florida, around the horn out to Texas, uh, Arizona, New Mexico. And then my candidates who are all overseas. So I'll recruit uh, stateside teachers to join search. There are other um, associates that work with the mid, the Midwest or the Northeast. And then there are associates based in England or Australia. So we're all this kind of loose network of remote people, but my focus is generally the Southeastern over to the Southwest United States. So, so if you were to join search, you would, if you said you were from Florida, you would be designated to come to my office. If you were from New York, you'd go to Arnell's office, another associate's office. Got it. Cool, cool. So Pete, one of the things I think is important for us to understand is there are kind of macro trends and micro trends with yeah. uh, recruiting, schools, jobs, professional development. And there is a whole cohort of people that are on the circuit. So they've gone to one or mm -hmm. two schools like ourselves and we get to know people and sometimes we don't recruit agencies and sometimes we do. And there's also a whole cohort of educators in North America and Australia, all over the world, in Africa and Asia and South America, that want to begin that journey. So there's kind of these two courts. But I think what would be really interesting to understand is kind of the macro. What is happening? There are international schools. There are a lot of them. What does the market look like? If you can kind of give us a macro, and then we'll look at the micros. Yeah, I think overall, macro is... Um... The trend that we see, the most prevalent trend, is the sheer number of international schools and how the face of international schools are changing and how I think a lot of domestic teachers, whether you're a teacher from Australia or the UK or the United States, I don't think uh, domestic teachers realize how many, uh, how big this is. Um, there are, last check, I think, let me, I wrote down some numbers from ISC research, and there are almost... 6 million students registered in international schools. So that's been a, a in the last 10 years, that's an increase of almost, it's, a, it's double just about. Um, there are 570,000 teachers working at international schools. The, the income from tuition is now at, um, I, I believe it's $53.8 billion. If you were to take that in terms of a GDP, that's above the GDP of Costa Rica. So this is really, really big. And I think a lot of, inter a lot of domestic teachers are like, oh, there's a few schools out there. No, there are 13,000 of these schools out there. And they're growing. And it's growing and growing. It's so interesting. that I, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical about the ISC numbers, honestly, because I've tried to pull together various lists of international schools. I can't, no matter, even if I count, like, Bob's English kindergarten, you know, in I, I still can't get it over ten thousand. I mean, I think I think it's personally, I'd say it's like nine nine ten thousand. Actually, you know, maybe in semi international schools, I think you could. I think that thirteen thousand number. You know, it depends what you count. You know, there's a lot of local government systems have English language programs, and I think I think they include a lot of those in, in well, that number as well. I think if, I think Dan, if we're going for macro trends, the trend is growth. Whether yeah. whether you want to, we want to. Say it's thirteen thousand. It's there's a lot. I think yeah, it's yeah. a lot. I think that's the the issue. And I think the the growth of international schools bodes well for teachers because definitely as as the looming teacher shortage is happening around the world, it's going to impact international schools. So it used to be years ago there were probably more candidates than schools or equally numbered. It was challenging. Now there's going to be a lot fewer candidates for a lot more schools. So it does bode well for the future. Interesting. Although the face of international schools, I think, is changing. Historically, I think John, I think, referred to in a past podcast about the NGO, the, the non-for-profit board of director-run schools that was run by an embassy that wasn't for profit, that was in a major city, um, and they were mainly expatriate students with a sprinkling of um, host, host national citizens in the school. And I've worked at many of those as well. Um, but what's happening is, and, and again, Dan, if you want to go with the ISC, 
Um, roughly 70, 80% of students now are post-national citizens attending international yeah, schools. Definitely. And 90% of so for-profit, for I mean, give or take. Yes. You know, give and or that's take where, the, that's where the, the rub hits. Yeah. So it's a different face of schools now because yeah. there are still those traditional schools out there that are run by nonprofits. They're a board of director run. They're, they're not looking to make a profit. Any money they have actually goes back into the school. But there are now corporate entities out there. There are founders of schools. And there's a whole labyrinth of, of schools and types of schools and reputations of schools that a candidate has to kind of negotiate. And that's yeah. where a, a working with an agency can help that, right? Definitely. Yeah, for yeah. me, I, I'm fascinated by this topic. John, we've had a couple of episodes. I think Denry, we did two episodes with Denry, I believe, talking yeah. about, about, yeah. about this yeah. kind of thing. And, and, it, and it's a complex situation now because it's not just profit for profit. You've got a lot of different price ranges, mid-tier schools, they're sometimes called lower-tier. You've got a lot of franchise schools for the typically the English private schools have kind of franchised their names to local private equity, property companies, all kinds of things who are running schools. You know, um, you've got various other networks. So yeah, it is, it's a very fragmented um, system, but increasingly a lot of, a lot of school groups, I think you would agree, like more and more groups of schools. You obviously had the big ones traditionally like Cognito and Nord Anglia and gems but now you've got a lot of like you know regional ones you'll have to have a bunch of schools in asia have a bunch of schools in the middle east you know and that's that seems to be increasing as well yeah and there are so, different types of schools like there's there's a, a charter group from this from the uh from the united states that's really big now in china um there are schools that are running satellite campuses where you as a student can go to school perhaps in one country but the school has networks to all these different countries. So you could actually country hop as you go through school. I mean, that's a yeah. really interesting model. So you could be a student and take a year in Italy and then go to France and then go to Tokyo and you could go around. So those are, there are really unique models happening out there now. Definitely. So Pete, we have this really big organization of international schools, different colors, different shades, different ways they engage, different ways they deliver learning. But if I am a candidate and I want to begin this journey, what are some things that we, uh, so let's talk about a candidate that has never done this. So they're in the local public school system. They might be in an independent school in their country and they want to go out. What is kind of the timeline that you would tell them to start thinking about in some of the key. Yeah, I, I think um, that's really important. Even for uh, seasoned international teachers, I think people get, get it a little bit wrong. Um, the research that, that my company Search has done is if you look at it, uh, recruiting as a bell curve, right? So if you look at the, the, the season starts to heat up kind of in October, it starts. But the, the peak hiring season is that December through February. Where a lot of the teachers think, if I don't get a job by October for the following school year, I've missed the boat. It's really December through February is, is the big hit. So what we tell candidates to do is be ready, get yourself organized in the summer before you want to go. So August 2022 for August 2023 school year. Yeah. So, so we're in 2023, we're in the spring now, or, you know, late winter, spring. So we're saying this summer, you need to start getting uh, involved. Yeah. In if you're, if you're looking, going. yeah, if you're looking to do 23, 24, next school year, you've got to get on it right now. Like right now is the time to start. You've, you're, you've missed a little bit, but it's still not too late because that December, February is the big, is the big push. There are still jobs that go all the way through. I put, I placed a candidate in July, August for August. Like there's still jobs out there toward the end of the year. But if you want to be get in the mix, you can't wait any longer. Now is it for a 23-24 school year. So wow. we tell candidates, be ready over the summer, get your resumes together, you know, get your, your, your little video together, be online, get onto the websites, you know, start looking around. You know, so you understand the process. And then when you, when October hits, you're ready to go. Like you're on it. Even September, really, you should be, you should be going, you should be active in September, August, September. 
to get those just, early early announcements, right? I'm interested in what you said earlier about the the sort of you know obviously in the US and the UK there's becoming a, a real teacher shortage now, and you think that mm -hmm. trend could going to come into international schools. Do you think sure. that's um, do you think that's already starting? And and also, do you think it's also? I'm curious. Obviously, John and me are from an IT background. You know, I'm curious about a lot of our listeners are tech directors and tech people. Do you think? Do you think there'll be a lot of opportunities for maybe people with a tech background who haven't worked with schools to move into working, working with schools and things? Or do you, do you think that, that that's there's not going to be a shortage of those kind of roles? Do you think it's more going to be the teaching roles? I, I, and again, this is only my my humble opinion. I think there's yes and yes. It's going to be shortage and shortage. Yes, yeah. I think schools are realizing the importance, especially. I mean, there's pre-pandemic and then there's now, and there's a totally different. It's totally different. So schools are realizing that the importance of being nimble in their in their tech. Not only because once you say I'm going to go all in for one, we're going to go all in for Zoom. It's going to change in a year or two. So what's what's the new thing? So getting getting tech professionals out there, if they have an education background, so much the better. But I see schools looking for people that can manage their hardware. Um, maybe not so much their educational technology, but John would know more than me. John's a, a tech director. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think there's a combination where this educational technology, yeah, that's that's a given. Like we need teachers to be upskilled, we need students to be upskilled, we need their platforms, we need to be able to go remote on an instant, we need to be able to be nimble. But I think there's the the there may be a need for those hardware folks to get in there. Maybe they don't have educational backgrounds. So, yeah. John, I, I don't know. You, you would have know you, have you seen a lot more jobs, sort of tech director type jobs, John? I mean, I've, the ones I've noticed have been a similar amount, but do you think it's starting to increase more kind of open positions and things? I think it also depends on countries because I think in some countries you have a very a wealthy group, wealthy skill set of local tech guys. So if you're talking yeah. like, I'm just wondering in my current situation, they're all local guys. They've gone through the local polytechnics, the local technicums, and they're running our systems. They're not going recruiting abroad. Yeah. So I think it depends. I think if you're thinking of pedagogic, so an IT director that can manage the education technology, the pedagogy, the library, kind of the curriculum, then usually what you're going to do is look for somebody that has that experience. And that might be more in uh, North America, Australia, or the UK, yeah, yeah. or those kind and, of areas. And following up, John, I think what's, what I see is there'll be a director of technology, educational technology, who will be a pedagogical leader in terms of that. They will then hire an assortment of people to work in their team. Some of them will be tech facilitators that work directly with teachers and educational technology. And other folks are just database managers or yeah. hardware guys. Like they don't need to be educationalists, so to say, but that, that head person tends to be someone who's gonna have the, uh, have the understanding of the school and how the systems work. Like John was talking about libraries now, with, you know, even sure. college counseling with Navion software. There's a lot going on. I was they need some technicians. Yeah, I was just curious, John, if, you, if you've started to see for the for the tech director positions, more positions become become free. Do you think that trend has kind of started yet? Like, or is it still? You think it's still kind of a similar supply and demand I, still? The, the, I think I think part of the thing is tech directors tend to stay much longer in those positions yeah. because if you're going to implement, say, a switch to the Google Workspace or Microsoft or whatever, that takes time and student information systems. I think it's just, you know, you can't really be a tech director, go for two years one place and then go two years. There's not, you know, it, these things take time and it's yeah, a change yeah. process. Yeah. So I think, you know, many of uh, the people that you and I know and colleagues have been in their positions for quite a long time. So I think yeah. that's, and that's, that's, a good, that's a good point, John. And, and getting back to maybe Dan's question in a little bit of maybe getting back to the, that teacher who's looking to go out overseas and the shortage of teachers that's looming. Right now, I don't think in, in the group that I'm working, I can, I can only maybe say from my experience with search associates and maybe I'll expand out about that a bit. But in our group, we only work with about 800 or so schools. We keep it kind of lean and mean. We're, these are good quality schools that we've vetted to make sure that candidates are gonna have a good experience. So we vet schools and we vet candidates to make sure we have good candidates, good schools, and then we put them together in a bit of an ecosystem to try to make some yeah. matches that, that they see fit. But the, what we see is there's in our school group, 
there's still plenty of applications going to those schools. Um, but I think there are going to be, I'm seeing a little bit now, some of the schools who are new, maybe startup schools, maybe not in a consortium, getting that for them to get high quality teachers is becoming a bit of a struggle. Yeah, I think. And point. I can see that emerging where if you're in search associates and we have a pool of good candidates, we have 3000 jobs posted. Um, I think we're still okay there. But the new candidates are quite different than maybe John and myself as candidates. When we talk about hiring, maybe let's get back to some hiring a bit. Yeah. The way candidates used to hire was through job in-person job fairs. You, there was no other before the internet, or even with the beginning of the internet, you could not really contact the school. So you had to go to an in-person job fair. If I'm working in Kuala Lumpur uh, or Tokyo, I'd have to fly into London or somewhere to go to a job fair to get a job. And that was, you just factored that in as the cost of doing business. Is that, you know, John, is that what we've done in the past, yeah. right? Yeah. Absolutely. So what's happened now is now we're in the pen. So I'd say 80% of the jobs were filled at in-person fairs. Then the pandemic comes and everyone moves to platforms like Zoom or similar. And schools had to be nimble and start recruiting virtual fairs or through just their own systems, Zooming conferences. So now we're coming through that and we're going, my age group is going, hey, we can go back to these face-to-face -face fairs now. So now the face-to-face -face fairs, the schools still want to do it. For example, our Cambridge fair was the flagship fair. We, we have now, I think there's 80, 85, 90 schools signed up and we don't have many candidates signed up. So the candidates are digging this whole idea of, hey, I, I'll, I'll just Zoom with people. I don't have to fly somewhere, take time off work, have the cost and expense. Why can't we do it through Zoom? So we're at this push point now where if I'm a candidate and I can get to the, the searches, it's a fair now in person, the, the, the ratio of schools to candidates favors the candidate very much right now. I'd get on a plane if I could and go, if that's possible. If it's not within your finances or your time, I understand that and don't, don't of course, go into debt. But it's shifting now. So I don't know how the recruitment's going to be as we go forward out of this, where the, the new teachers coming in for the last three years, there really haven't been any face-to-face fans. They haven't experienced that. They're saying, I'll just Zoom with people. Why do I need to get on a plane? So it's really interesting what's going to shake out as we move forward. I don't know if that's a segue that's- Yeah, that so yeah, Pete, are you then saying that those recruitment agencies like yours, Search Associates, have to start thinking of hybrid? So you say, okay, we have 85 schools in Cambridge. We're gonna use Cambridge, Massachusetts as right. the example. You have 85 schools. You have maybe 120 candidates come, but usually you're used to having 350 and you're saying, okay- 600. Well, you know, 600. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So you're going to say, oh, we'll go hybrid. So you can either physically be there or you can zoom in and we're going to create a platform. Yeah. But the thing is, I think people don't realize the the, the face to face. I mean, Zoom is, I think, 80 percent good. I mean, it, it's like it's like online teaching. It's good, better than than not having anything. But it's not as good as being in that classroom with those kids face to face. And yeah. I think that's where those in-person fairs is. You get to meet people and talk to them. And the other thing that happens is I don't think candidates are aware that when I would go to a fair as a recruiter, you would be recruiting all day and talking to candidates. And then afterwards, you know, you're going to meet up with some of your friends who are administrators and you're going to, you know, maybe go have a little dinner or maybe a, a cocktail, heaven forbid. And you're going to be talking and you'll say, hey, you know, you know, does anyone know anyone? Like, I've interviewed a really good candidate. It's not a great fit for us, but man, what a great grade three teacher. If anyone's interested check this person out. So there's a lot of networking yeah. that goes on. Or someone may say, hey, I'm really looking for that physics teacher. And someone will say, yeah, I interviewed a really good person. Boom. But then that, a lot of that happens. So I think those in-person fairs, there's a lot of the front office of it, but a lot of the back end of it happens as well. So I think um, if I were a candidate and the, the ratio is, is pretty good, I would seriously consider trying to attend one. I, I think that would be a really good move, especially if it's your first time doing it. You get to meet people, talk to people. It gets you off the, it gets your resume seen. When you send your resume in digitally, you know, you, you, it, how do you separate yourself? 
But when you're there in person, your personality comes out, all those things come out. You know, I think that that's an important aspect as well. I think that's, so I Pete, think that's great advice. Sorry, John. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, after you. Pete, so what about the veteran teacher that's been to three or four international schools and they're saying, I don't need to go to a fair. I'm going to use my professional learning network. I worked with this principal. I'll write to the schools. And they start really leveraging the professional learning network and they feel, okay, the fair and the recruiter is not as important. Now, that might be different if you're transitioning to a leadership position. So I'm just wondering, how do you... Uh, answer that where somebody says, well, I don't really need to go to a fair because I have this professional learning network. I worked in three other schools. I know enough people and I'm going to reach out. Yeah, I think, yes, that's, that's a strategy that some people use. And I, I, I've used it myself at times, <laughs> excuse me. But I, I think we have to also be careful of it's changed now. So how do you get, um, how do you get your resume to the top of the pile. If you know someone at that school and you have a network, well, great. But how many schools do you have that much connection to? Um, you know, I, I, I sit there, I go through resumes of people all the time. Like you'd be amazed how these veteran educators uh, have really kind of poor resumes. So I, I spend a good deal of my time resume coaching, just getting this, you know, getting things in tune. So I think there's strategy that people have to make and, and feel comfortable. I'm more of a, I was more of a plan A, plan B guy. So my plan A was, hey, I would go and do some on my own, but I would also have a plan B where I would use a, a, an agency because there'd be things I wouldn't be aware of. And that's the, that's the things where I, I always felt I was open to different experiences and from a person from when I was a teacher. So I never thought I would end up in some of the places I did. But because I was made aware of these different positions, I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. I never would have thought of going to Kuala Lumpur. And there I was in this fabulous school. So I, I think, yes, I agree, John, that people can do this on their own. And, and, they, and people have great success. But you're narrowing your window a little bit if you do. I'm more of a big plan person because you don't know what will pop up for you, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for a new teacher out there, I, I do think, as we mentioned before, there are the landscape has changed. So I really think if you're a new teacher, um, you have to be careful because there are many, many really reputable um, corporate schools or founder led schools or for profit schools There are many very reputable. And there's no problem with that. So I'm not saying for profit is better than non for profit or vice versa. But what what I do know is there are some schools out there that are for-profit at the expense, perhaps, of students and teachers. And as a new teacher, you have to be really careful not to get yourself in a situation that is, is, um, is not a good fit. I'll put it that way. So working with, an, with, working with a reputable agency, I think, is really important uh, for a new teacher. Because you get to, I think the nice thing about search is you, a candidate has an associate. So that candidate has someone like myself and I'm available to Zoom as much or as little as they like, contact as much as little as they like, um, to talk them through. Even when they get a job offer, we talk it through. Yesterday, I went through the contracts with a teaching couple um, and went through what's on the contract, how does it work, what's taxation, all those. So they feel comfortable with that. And then the schools within our network have been vetted to be reputable schools. If you're out on your own or you're working with a group that's kind of headhunting you and selling you to schools and arranging things for you, you have to be really careful. So do your, do your homework is I guess what I'm saying. Like make mm-hmm. sure you're getting yourself in the right spot because like John, when John and I first went out, there were a very limited number of schools and generally they were not for-profit schools and generally you were treated fairly well. It, the landscape has changed a little bit, you know, and if you're a school owner, and maybe you don't have the best interest of a teacher or a student at heart, um, and you get a $100,000 surplus, does that go back into the school for computers and programs, or does it go into your personal funding? What what do you think about websites like, I don't know if you're familiar with internationalschoolsreview.com, and uh, these ones where where teachers can, I mean, it's hilarious. It's actually great comedy. Uh, John, I think I shared my login, but it's interesting. It's pretty comprehensive. It's, It's basically where people 
anonymously review their skills and everything. They review yeah. leadership. I think and, the intent uh, of that was 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 really was good. I think their intention was pure. But yeah. um, most people don't want to pay twenty five dollars to praise their school. No, there's not a lot of good things being said. <laughs> but so, but yeah. you can but you can compare. Does it have more bad things or a lot of uh, like a few bad things? a medium amount of bad things or like a yeah, huge yeah. amount of bad things yeah. you know and so i think it's still a valid comparison i mean there's a lot of people on there and honestly i think i couldn't i hope i don't i hope i don't know this person in real life because i would just based on how they're communicating you know they're just like in a terrible way because it's anonymous you know and no one can um and there's it's a lot anonymous. of people down there yeah I, 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 you know, I think what we tell teachers is this, and in our group, and for me, in any any situation, um, I would strongly encourage a teacher if they're interviewing with a school and it's going well and they sense it's going well and maybe that their second interview or third interview and the school maybe has an offer or you feels about to make an offer or they the school asks you, hey, do you have any questions or anything like that? You automatically say, may I speak with a, a teacher in my demographic at that school? Yeah. Um, schools are really happy to do that. In fact, in my my previous two, my my previous schools, when I was recruiting as a recruiter for those schools, I would insist that a teacher speak to another teacher. Yeah. If, if I had a single female teacher, look, I'm a 60 year old you know guy. I don't know what it's like to be in Hanoi as a youngish uh, single female. So I'd have them talk to a specific person on school, and the teachers would volunteer to do this. So that a, a young teacher or a teaching couple with children could say, hey, are there pediatricians? Are there play dates? Are these things happening? So that they can get an understanding of the school from a teacher's point of view. And then you yeah. get it from someone who is at that school in that situation, not being censored by the administration or anything, but saying, hey, talk to these people. So that's a very important thing. And I encourage all candidates, whether you're working with an agency or not. Just say, hey, can I speak to a teacher at the school? If the school would say no, then I would really recommend you think twice about that experience or that that offer. Yeah, definitely. Pete, one thing also that you do and that a lot of educators around the world, they become teachers, they may become great team leaders, PYP coordinators, and they start having uh, roles of responsibility and leadership becomes one of the professional goals and transitioning to a leadership position then can sometimes be quite challenging because if you've yep. been a teacher and you don't have that experience, it's really hard for your resume to stick out. And I think there, there is a lot of advantage to working with uh, organizations like yourself to get some coaching and also get those, uh, mm -hmm. you know, connections. What are some tips or what are some things people should be thinking about if they're going through the leadership route? So I'm assistant principal. I want to become a principal. I'm a principal. Mm -hmm. I want to become a director or I'm a teacher and I want to become an assistant principal. Those transitions. The, yeah. The, the biggest transition is um, from teacher to admin. That, that's the most challenging because there are there are many teachers that want to move into admin. And before a candidate does that, I, I often talk to them about think this through. Um, it, it's a really, I, I enjoyed working as a teacher and I enjoyed being an administrator. I thought it was school leader. I thought both were great. I, I was a teacher for just about 18 years before I went into leadership. And um, I, I think you have to be really careful because some teachers really love the classroom and then they don't realize um, that leadership comes with some, some challenges in terms of I, you know, you have to essentially sometimes you may have to fire a teacher. You may have to expel a student. You you get into you get into you get into things that are really challenging, you know, like on a on a professional and personal level with teachers and students and families, and it can be really really challenging. So I always talk to people saying, "Are you are you are you prepared for that? Are you prepared?" Like we were talking just before John, and you said you had some difficult situations in your current school that you had to deal with. And that was really, it, it hurt you as a human being, like to be doing these things. So, you know, I, you know, when you do the right thing and people abuse you on the internet, like you have to be ready for this. Like, yeah. you know, so I think you have to have a thicker skin and look at the big picture. And I often caution people saying, are you ready for this? But getting back to Johnson, how do you do this? You have to build up, you have to build up a skill set. So in a school, I think, getting involved with from teacher become a head of department work on the accreditation teams 
Get yourself out there and do accreditation visits with, with schools. Get yourself in these positions where you're in this mid-level leadership. So the next phase is the logical next phase. So if you're just a classroom teacher and I'm, I'm a classroom teacher, I'm really good and I've done nothing in accreditation. I've done nothing to volunteer at the school in different ways. I don't have a master's degree. I don't have a certification. I don't have anything that's leading me toward that trail. It will be very challenging. But what you want to do is set your position up where the next logical step is. So if you're an HOD and you're working on the school's accreditation and you're on their leadership team and their advisement team, you're doing all these little steps that add up. Well, the next logical step is to an assistant principal step. And then when you get into that level, what are the things you need to start doing thinking ahead? So the next logical step is to become a principal. So when you are an assistant principal, are you mentoring teachers? Are you observing teachers? Are you involved with the board of directors? Are you involved? Are you volunteering for these different aspects? So the next logical step is, hey, this person's done all these things. The next logical step for them to be would be a principal. Is that too broad, John, or is that? No, is no, that no. That makes that. I think that's really helpful. I think, you know, for people have to understand it's a professional path and you have to be deliberate yes. about it. And you have to be walking up that path. And when you start, Sometimes a teacher will say to me, oh, I've been a teacher for 20 years. I want to be, an, I want to be a principal. Well, okay. Well, what have you done to, to get there? Have you gotten your master's degree in school leadership? Do you have a certification? Do you have any internships? Do you have any experience as an HOD? Do you have any, like, what are the steps that the next brick down the road, and then you're ready for it? Because you don't want to jump in when you're not prepared either because then you're putting your career at risk and, and the school at risk. So have you done things with, that have displayed a leadership characteristic that you can, you, can, you, can, you can verify? Like, I'm doing this, 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 this. Oh, the next step is to do this, boom, right? And I think what's really helpful is that it's it, how deliberate it is. You have to really say, professionally, I'm excited. I wanna do this. I'm gonna go and get the further uh, degrees or the further professional development and then really be proactive and saying let me yep. volunteer let me and i think that's so important for people to understand because i think you know so often leadership positions especially you know if you're going to trying to become a principal or even a director those are big big positions and of course the the process will be far uh far more intense and they're going to look for very specific experience like, that fits if you don't have your if, if you don't have your your philosophy and your your goals clearly defined in your head when everyone's in the room and they're all there's a problem going on it's a big discussion and now and everyone turns and goes looks at you like okay what's your decision uh, and everyone's looking at you and you gotta say hmm okay you know you know you can you can all you can distribute leadership you can you know collaborate but at some times you'll have to make difficult decisions and in your skill set can can you weigh the options and can you make a difficult decision um, by by collaborating by getting opinions by doing all these things but is that in your skill set to stand there and make a decision and then and then live with it evaluate it reflect upon it but that's something that i find sometimes Educators want to please people a lot. And everyone wants to do that, I think. But you have to be really careful. You have to make decisions that maybe would not be pleasurable for some people. Yeah. And, and that, that takes a little bit of, that's not a learned skill. That's just, can you deal with that? I, I guess yeah. that's one thing I, yeah. I think of, right? The, there's the humanistic side of leadership. And there's the professional side. Yeah, and Arnie, so when we talked to Arnie Beaver, he said very similar things, John, about you know, showing yeah. intent, doing, you know, like you mentioned, are you taking on leadership positions within the school? Are you doing the, you know, a master's degree or, or whatever else it is? You know, it's interesting. And also, I think, you know, you, you mentioned this, but I, I really think it's true. But a lot of people don't think enough if they want to do a leadership position, you know, like, you, do you think it's the next step? I should do it. And it's yeah. and like, you know, it's like, if, if you put yourself in a few leadership positions, you might financially that you don't want to do it. You know, it's, it's not absolutely not for everybody. And, and, and Dan, I think there's, there's a really good point there. When you are uh, um, a teacher and the next step, the next, you know, step, it's not a huge step, but the next step would be an HOD, a head of department or a team leader or something in that grade level leader responsibility. You get a taste of it. Yeah. And, you, and, you, and then right then and there, you can say, hmm, I kind of find this intriguing. 
I like the whole macro approach. I like to be doing these different things. I, I would like yeah. to have more of that. Or you may feel, you know, mm, not so much. And then, then, then you should say, well, what else can I do as leadership positions in a school? I may like really like curriculum. Well, you can get in, involved in leadership from a curriculum standpoint. I can get involved in leadership from a technology standpoint. I can get into counseling and do those things. So there are other avenues in leadership that don't necessarily have to be um, principal, assistant principal, head of school. Yeah, yeah. There are some really cool jobs out there that maybe take a different skill set that would be better for, for a candidate. So they could reevaluate what they're going to do. So each step you take, you can sit back and then reflect upon, okay, now I'm an assistant principal. I see what the principal is doing. Is that something I want to do? Yes or no? Hey, I, I see what the curriculum coordinator is doing. Hmm, that looks interesting too. Yep. Then you could, once you get to the next step, then you evaluate where you are and you evaluate the next steps to see which of those fits you personally and professionally. And I, I think the personally yep. gets forgotten sometimes. Um, I know a yep. lot of heads of school that sometimes feel totally abused and their hearts are broken. But in public, they can't do that. But their hearts are broken because of what's happening to them on the internet or whatever. And they're trying to do the best job they can. So that's a, that's a, you know, that's a personal side of this stuff. So I think you have to be prepared for both personal and professional. Yeah. I mean, a different that, approach, but. And we had Dr. Helen Kelly on and actually she's coming back because she just uh, did a book, uh, did a huge study about uh, leadership burnout. And uh, she was saying about how, you know, principals and directors and heads and assistant principals, it's full on. You're giving. It's all emotion. It's all transactional yeah. with adults and kids and parents. And it's nonstop. And, and, you know, everybody comes to you for constant solutions. And as you said, and I think you said it really well, you can have all the shared leadership and vulnerabilities and collaboration but at you can the do what the all day, the books say but eventually yeah. they're going to look at you and say what's your decision right and yeah you go. exactly so, exactly but i, I think, think it's even more that. important from an international point of view um i think i think sometimes leaders leaders in the states don't realize the intensity of the international experience because if you're a leadership position in the states of course you care for your teachers and your students i'm not saying one person cares for them more or less but internationally i was involved in someone goes to the hospital at night i'm going to the hospital with them uh, they're in, we're in Hanoi, Vietnam. Someone falls off their motorbike and they don't have anyone else to call. Who do they call? They, they call you. So you're involved in, I've been involved in divorces. I've been involved in like all sorts of things that you wouldn't necessarily have to be involved in in a domestic situation in the US, UK, or States as, as a school leader. You're involved in, you know, kids getting sick. You're involved in all this stuff on a 24-7. So, you know, when I was a principal in the States, um, I did a, a quick stint in the States. They didn't, I wasn't the first port of call for something that happened in a teacher's personal life. But sometimes overseas, you're involved because there's no one else to contact. Family isn't there. Maybe friend, the friend network isn't there. The teacher doesn't know how to speak the language and they're going to a hospital. I arranged to get the school nurses and we, we, we triage this stuff. So there's, it's much more intense on the on the outside of school i think the inside of school thing is relatively the same the outside of school is is quite different do you think it do you think there's um it varies between different types of schools because the reason i answer that is because like obviously you talked about the advantages of working for like a, a sort of tier one traditional international school you know the packages are usually good it's a not-for-profit so you know that you know there's a focus on teaching and learning but if i take all the people i know who work for all kinds of different international schools like typically say take some like john the kind of schools he's worked at like that's that those kind of jobs and leadership is usually you know pretty much give your life to the school your social life is other people in the school your work is very intense but i think there's definitely kind of some of these you know i don't know what the official there's no official word but say mid-tier other schools where i know people who kind of have quite an easy life you know they maybe don't get paid paid as much uh, they don't get the good conditions and maybe it is a for-profit school but you know in some cases that it's actually you know a much more manageable workload N not always like you can have for-profit schools that people work even harder than other schools but have you seen that kind of like trend or, or, or and any breakdown like that either of you no not really no um, I think, yeah, I'm sure there are schools out there that aren't requiring you to do a lot. Um, I've, I've, I've 
I haven't really been associated with that. I find yep. sometimes the for-profit schools require much more of their teachers because they're 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 really focused on cost. So they'll give a teacher seven preps. They won't they won't hire another teacher. They'll just give the section to another teacher. Like it, it becomes challenging. There are, but there are all levels of schools. There are all levels. There are lots of uh, teachers that are involved in um, language institutes or tier three schools where you're not required to do much, but a teacher with pride will want to do more. Uh, no, I mean, definitely. A lot of teachers will do things because, you know, the people yeah. I would normally work with are people who are doing things outside of their job anyway. Yeah. But, you know, I definitely know, like, say, tech directors, like someone in John's position. I know some tech directors at schools who have a pretty easy life. <laughs> Quite honestly, you know, because <laughs> they're honest with me because I'm not their boss and I, I'm just a friend, you know, like right. they, they really do, you know. So, John, what do you think about that? <laughs> no, John's not one of them. John doesn't ever has an easy life. I know. I, 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 yeah, I'm not going to comment on that, but I, I, I would say the colleagues in the, my network, uh, everybody's working too hard and yeah. does a great job. Yeah. Yeah. I, One I'm thing sure. that Pete, we're going to need, I, I think is really important to talk to about through COVID, there was this whole, uh, DEIJ movement that became very prominent and really important. There were some excellent articles that surfaced and it was very apparent there was a disconnect in the way a lot of schools were looking at diversity, equity, inclusion, and mm -hmm. justice. And, and I know that uh, we're all aware of it. Uh, awareness is very different from being able to action something. And that's something that, you know, I think is everybody's hope and a lot of people are doing a lot out there in the space they're organizations they're individuals that are really amplifying the importance of us coming to terms with that and really doing some self uh, introspection and really looking at the systems and not just the people but what are we doing systematically not to have a far more open diverse uh, type of recruitment and pool of teachers and diversity in our staffs Talk to us a bit about that as a recruitment agency. And I know you're not going to, I'm not asking you to talk about it as a representative of all recruitment agencies, mm -hmm. but I know that different agencies and like yours have really taken this on board. Talk a bit about that journey. How did that come about and what are some concrete things? And I know everybody wants it to happen very fast and organizations yeah. are much more complex and change sometimes can be much more uh it's slower and maybe not as clear or maybe more fragmented but i would like to hear your personal opinion on this and how important that's become yeah and it's 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 a it's a big topic john and i think um we're not gonna be able to get into all of it now but i, I, no, I no, do, no, i'm no, really no, happy I i'm really i'm really happy with um Search Associates and our, our CEO, Jessica Magania. Uh, Jessica's father, John Magania, started Search Associates. So it's, uh, it's in her DNA, Search Associates. Um, this is her, this is probably her major focal point. Of course, the company and placing candidates and school leaders and work, that's all important too. But this is the thing that she's taken to heart. Um, so I, we as a company have gone through trainings. We have consultants working with us. How do we make our application process more open and inclusive? What do we do? How do we contact schools? For example, if a school signs up to be a Search Associates member, um, their, their application or their data page has pointed questions. Do you have DEI policies? Um, are you doing DEI training at your school? Yes, no. If so, yes. What? Um, does your government have any laws against the inclusion in terms of uh, uh, orientations and race, religion, anything like that? Those are questions that are right on the school's data page that candidates can see. Um, we no longer have photos, for example, on the applications. Um, we keep things very um, open and inclusive. The problem is it's a slow haul with some international schools. There are many that are just leading the way. We get emails from schools saying, we want to diversify our student, our teaching body. Do you know of any candidates, diverse candidates that we can interview? So there are schools who are actively and proactively seeking to diversify their teaching, um, uh, teaching body. However, there are certain schools who are, who are not, um, driven sometimes by parents. Um, I, I know that, for example, in Vietnam, I spoke to a few um, school leaders who would like to diversify their student body, but the parents didn't want a certain type of teacher. And this is a 
for-profit school in a situation where the parents were mainly host national, but they wanted that British kind of teacher in front of the room teaching. And that's what the parents were expecting from an international school. Some countries have laws that prevent the school from being more progressive. I know of many school heads that are frustrated and quite embarrassed that they can't hire a more diverse faculty because the laws of that country will not permit them to do so. I spoke to a candidate yesterday who offered a fantastic job in a country in the Middle East, is very worried to accept because of his orientation. And what a shame, I'm speaking to a, you know, this is 2022 and I'm speaking to a, an adult professional educator who can't go to a certain country and teach kids and do what he does best because of who he chooses to love. It's none of anyone's business. So I, I, you know, we were heartbroken talking about this. So on some levels, a lot of movement has happened and the, the bar has moved way forward, but there's much more to happen. I don't know if I've answered the question. I've kind of- Yeah, absolutely, no. It, but it's I such a it's labyrinth important. right now. It is a labyrinth yeah. and this is so important, but I think also it's so complex because you're dealing, and, I, and thank you for bringing that up. We're dealing with a very different cultures around the world that have different yeah. perspectives on LGBT plus. And I think, you know, one has to be at least candid and, and aware that those are challenges and, and that is very difficult. And those are some of the huge mountains that we have to climb yeah. as a community of and, educators. And, and, and chipping in there, John, I think this is where I think organizations that have um, agencies that have associates connected to candidates. I'm working with two candidates right now who have job offers. They do not want to broach this with the school, their orientation, because they don't want to out themselves. It's none of anyone's business. So what I'm doing is I'm contacting that head of school directly for them saying, we have a candidate. I have a candidate who's really interested in your school. Um, what is your, is, will your school be welcoming to LGBTQ plus candidates and or the country be welcoming? Can you give me quick thoughts? So I can find information out for those candidates and provide them with some, some basis of knowledge. What I can see happening in the future is we'll probably have networks where teachers can talk openly about these rather than having an ISR about complaining and complaining, we could have a chat group. So there are some informal ones out there, but I'd like to make it more formal where people can actually talk to other teachers about their experiences in different countries so they can get it from people who have been on the ground. Um, I think that's really important. Like even with the, when we say teachers should talk to teachers before they go, because then you're hearing it from people who are on the ground working in that situation. So I think if there's somehow we can get teachers more information, then we can go from there. Um, what I also tell candidates is if you're looking at a job in a country, say that women's rights are not as strong as they should be in that country, and you are a teacher and you choose to go to that country, if you can live with that, if you can say, okay, this country has this is the law of this country where maybe I'm not allowed to drive a car, for example. If you can live with that without having it burn a hole in your heart, then maybe you can go to that. But if that's going to bother you to your soul, you should really think about that because you as an expatriate teacher are not going to be in the position to change that government's point of view. Yeah. And if you yeah. choose to be out there doing that, then you run the risk of this could be challenging for you in terms yeah, of yeah. repercussions. So people have to think long and hard about where they choose to go and how they feel about that. Like, of course, I think that it's wrong to, to women's rights should be, everything should be equal. There's no problem with that. But if I'm gonna to go to a country that overtly states that it's not, I have to be really careful about that because yeah. if I can live with that, fine. Um, and I do talk to teachers about who ask questions about going to countries that are predominantly one religion. And I say, well, I've lived in, for example, I've lived in Islamic countries and the hospitality and the kindness is just overwhelmingly cool. So you can't go what's in the media. You have to really find out what's happening on the ground in those, in those situations, in those countries. 
Thank you, Pete. No, I really appreciate that. And I think, you know, there are a lot of organizations and individuals that are doing DEIJ training in schools. And I know mm -hmm. uh, CIS, ECIS, uh, ERCOS, yep. a lot of yep. organizations have gone full on and really made an effort. Mm -hmm. There's ALOC. There are a lot of other organizations supporting, you know, uh, different leaders from diverse communities. Well, and I think I look at it this way, really I, you know, John. One of the nice things about this, one of the few nice things about being old is you have perspective, right? So I remember back in the in a few decades ago, um, some students asked me in a school we were both teaching at. They asked me to, can I help them start a GSA? Uh, and that caused a lot of hullabaloo at the school. I remember doing a faculty meeting about it and getting a lot of pushback. Can um, you give us the acronym so, of GSA, Pete, just for people that uh, might not be familiar? Uh, uh, a, a, gay straight, a Gay Straight Alliance, sometimes called GSSA. So it's a Gay Straight Student Alliance. So it's an all alliance where students come together to support each other, no matter the orientation. So where they were starting in the 90s, um, there was a lot of pushback. And now that is so common. You'll see rainbow flags in schools. You'll see, you know, Everyone's value, love, love, love is love is not gender based. You see all these great things happening in schools from the students. A lot of the students are driving this change, and then the adults are saying, "Yeah, I got to gear up here. If I'm not if I'm not there, I got to get I got to get on the board with this." So I, I do remember that, like that. If we're going from that level to what's happening now, I think a lot of strides have have happened. A lot I agree of good, with good you. movement has happened, but yeah. If you take it now and we see what should be, I think sometimes you don't look back and say, what was it like and what is it like now? If it's, what it's like now is not good. I agree. I don't like where we are now. We need to do more. But yeah. where it was a while ago was archaic. You really think about it and you say, how could that have been? Why, why would someone push back on a GSSA group that kids just wanted to support each other? You know, and now now those are so commonplace in schools. I, I think most schools probably don't even need them because it's just embedded now in the school that. Yeah. But, but what's the and you know, I think you're, not, love is love, right? There you go. Yeah. And I'm not being your point. Is important, yeah. An important point you brought up is there's a lot of student uh, activism and awareness and students mm -hmm. saying we want this and reaching out to faculty yeah. and getting faculty yeah. support. And I've experienced that and different uh, school settings. And I think that's really refreshing. And then at the same time, and, and John, the I, think, organization... I, think, I think there's a point, I think, I think like we're, we're focusing on orientation a little bit and, and gender, but I do think racial is, is racial equity is happening as well. Um, where, you know, we like search associates goes to the people of color conference in San Antonio was there last week. Um, we're, we're reaching out to groups having and trying to say, you know, are you aware these opportunities are out there? Because I think certain groups don't even know that these opportunities exist or they haven't explored them because they feel the opportunity won't not be there for them. So we, I talked to, I don't know how many, I'm, I'm a chatter, you know, John, I'm a chatter. So I've been chatting to everyone at this conference and you know, people are like, really? You can, you can go overseas and, and teach like that? Said, you bet. You know, you're like, I don't know why more Americans don't want to do this. There's, there's no violence. There's no lockdown there's no guns in vietnam that you have to be scared of like yeah. so you can go teach and have this great life and save a bit of money and explore the world why aren't more people doing this so i think for example at the people of color conference i think what i got from that was the majority of the folks at that conference the teachers at that conference didn't even really know that this existed for them they knew it existed, but I don't think they realized it existed that this is accessible for, for, for anybody. I hope I said, hope I worded that right. You know, I yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think no, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I was going to say, I think, you know, when it comes to the, the, like the racial discrimination, you know, I, I'll push back a little bit. I, I think it's maybe even worse than maybe you guys are putting it out to me. I'll give you an example. I was at the AirCost conference recently uh, in Asia, AirCost leadership. I don't know how many people there were, maybe 900 people. I'm guessing, um, you know, people of black, uh, African origin, maybe two, three people there, mm -hmm. yep. a very small percentage of Asian people. We were in Asia, you know, <laughs> it wasn't even that many Asian people there. It was all people who looked like the three of us, basically. Um, yep. So, and you think that's, um, I think if you took another industry, 
I bet you'd have better representation in schools. I mean, I think schools have a lot to do, I think, really. Yeah, and that's what we're saying. Like, it's, yeah. it was the bastion of, it's, if you look at um, heads of schools, that cadre of schools, um, there's, a, there's a, a euphemism that, that used to be the great white fathers that would yes. run these schools, right? And then they were all, I think, great guy, great people, like really educationalists, but that face of the world is changing. There yeah. are many more females, females of color, different ethnicities, races, um, different orientations as heads of school. So you can see that happening. You can see the change. So yeah. schools are recognizing that they have not done a good job of this. Yeah. So like in the United States, it's, it's by law, like it's a law about discrimination. International teaching, you know, this is, we're pushing a movement for this to happen. So I agree, yeah. if you go to the typical conference, you will see a great deal of, um, of, of white teachers, put it that way, yeah. Caucasians. Definitely. But I think that's I think changing. I, and I think that's I changing think, rather quickly, actually. I think Dan's point's an important one. I think we still have a long way to go. Yeah. And I think, yeah. you know, in industry, and Dan, your point's an interesting one, because if you look at the tech world or a lot of other industries, it tends to be far more diverse. I think the other group is also women in leadership. You know, that's another mm -hmm. thing uh, where uh, that still is an area where we really have to amplify the mm -hmm. role of women and, and empower them to be in those leadership roles. I think this issue, and we've been talking a lot, it's really important. I think it's very complex. It's very nuanced. Mm -hmm. I think what, however different people look at it through different lenses, there is movement. There are people understanding mm -hmm. this has to change. It's changing, maybe not at the rate or at the pace for right. some, but I think I feel that there's a collective awareness that we have to, and sometimes you have to start with a collective awareness yeah. and internalize that before you can start actioning and changing structurally systems. But I think yeah. we maybe even are at the stage where systems and structures are starting to change. So yeah. thanks for well, that. We'll, 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 we'll put John. We'll put. Yeah. yeah. So I think one thing as we, and thank you, Pete, this has just been great to hear all these uh, ideas and strategies. Where do you see recruiting going here? Okay. So we're going, we have chat bots, uh, we could actually have a chatbot do the first uh, interview with me, maybe yeah. as a candidate. Uh, you know, I'm just wondering, what, where are you seeing recruiting? How are you strategically as an organization? You, you know, you, you gave the anecdote of you, have, you go in a city, you're X amount of schools, and you're noticing a lot of candidates are saying, no, I'm not physically moving, but I can be on Zoom. What, what are you guys or uh, you as a recruiter and you're thinking and you're vision of what's next. What are some things you'd like to share, just highlight before we wrap up? I, uh, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> is, is that a good answer, Sean? Um, yeah, I mean, so, I think... there, there's so much going on that and I, I, I'm, I'm looking at it where how do we keep the, the human, the human, the humanistic approach to this? How do we keep, I, I, maybe I'm old school. I, I think that teachings about people and relationships. So, you know, even on resumes, let's segue to cover some things that we haven't covered for the recruit, for a teacher who's looking to recruit. Um, the resume really shouldn't be a black and white list of duties. I, I, I did lesson plans. Da, 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 da. I think your resume now could express who you are as, a, as an educator, philosophically and pedagogically. So rather than writing, I created lesson plans. Okay, isn't that a basic expectation for all teachers? Shouldn't you expand upon that and say, I created inquiry-based learning experiences differentiated for all to accommodate all learning styles. Then you're telling a school that you are aware of inquiry, differentiation, inclusion, learning styles in one statement rather than saying this. So I, I created a classroom atmosphere that enabled students to feel comfortable taking academic risk. If you're an art teacher, do you wanna make sure that kids feel comfortable like taking an artistic risk, but being vulnerable if you're a counselor. So why shouldn't you not mention, if you're a teacher on your resume, shouldn't you have something about students and learning on your resume rather than wrote lesson plans? Like if I'm a banker, I'm, I'm sure you wrote talk about money on your resume. How do you handle finances, right? So as a teacher, shouldn't you do the same thing? So I guess what I'm getting around to is the importance of the relationship 
and the communication skills that a, that a teacher should possess. So how do we keep that in the recruitment process? Where for a relationships-based game, put it that way, a relationships-based industry, then how do we keep that in the world of technology? Where Zoom is good, but it's not as good as me being there with you. So how do we do both of those? I think that's my big macro conflict. Like we can say we can have AI do all these things, but then is AI can have built-in bias, whoever creates the AI when they're screening candidates. You know, what is the bias from AI? How do we assist schools? And now they're being bombarded by hundreds of emails every day for applications to jobs. How do we have schools manage that in a humanistic way? Because before, the before times, you, you had to apply at a job fair. There was no way to contact a school. So how do we leverage technology and still keep the humanistic side to this? Is that, I, I'm not answering your yeah. question, but no, that's where are. I'm at. That's, that's, yeah. that's where I'm at. I'm like- I think it's a, a good place to finish, definitely. It was yeah, great. I think, Pete, that's a great place for us to wrap up because I think at the end of the day, as you said, and I think Dan, and I in, in conferences and one thing that we like is those relationships we build and Dan just spent three months in Asia and I know of most of his days were connecting with other people you know having Definitely. conversations spending time with them maybe having a golf game or whatever it might be but developing those relationships and we are in an industry where having strong purposeful authentic caring relationships is so important and we want to model that that idea of equity and, and understanding and differentiation. We want kids to see that. And that's the yeah. world we want to really impact. So, so on John, that if you were note, to, Pete, go ahead. Yeah. If you were to think no, about ahead. it, for, for me, when I was hiring to staff a school, I wanted the world in front of the kids. So I was purposely and intentionally hiring singles, married, same-sex couples, different races, different, you know, anything I could get there. I wanted the teacher, the students to experience, hey, my teacher's from Kenya, and he's really good. Or my teacher, my, my, my teacher, Miss Jane, is married to Miss Alice, and they're really good. I love her. She's great. So I want those people to be in front of kids, because then that changes how people view others. Once you meet them, and then once the parents meet those teachers and realize these are great educators, then views change. It's like when you meet these people, when you meet people, not these people, when you meet people face to face and realize this is a good person, this is a high quality teacher, it all changes. But if you're just left in this remote digital world, you're not, you're not interacting in the same way. I mean, it's good enough. Like I'm Zooming with candidates today. We have a bond after we Zoom that's much more that's much better and deeper than when I just email back and forth. So Zoom gets you kind of there, but how can we enhance that? That's what I'm, I guess yeah. that's where I'm going. That makes sense. Absolutely. No, it makes absolute sense. Well, Pete, thank you so much. This has been really a wonderful journey and to hear and get your guidance and, sh and share your opinions. Uh, and also I think what's been really helpful for Dan and I is just understanding the complexity and the nuances of this industry of recruiting international educators yeah. around the and, world. And I thank you guys for giving me the opportunity. It's fun to see you again, John, and meet you, Dan. But I mean, if you ever want to do one on just recruiting and how we can help teachers do it, we, we, we segue way out of the way for that. But we, yeah. that's what we yeah. normally do, John, I guess, when we talk, right? Definitely. Yeah. Let's do another Absolutely. one. Sure. Yeah. But we could well, thank you very much. Want. If you're a teacher, what do you do, right? There's, there's what we can do. Pete, thank you very much. Uh, cool. International Schools Podcast. Don't forget the show notes. Pete was very kind to put some information on there and his bio, and I'm sure you can get in touch with him too if you have further questions. Dan, any parting thoughts? No, great chat. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, guys. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Okay. Cheers, guys. Take care now. See you, John. <laughs>